Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're going to be taking a look at terrorism from the inside out. And I mean that actually literally uh, because my guest can speak about it from the inside out. Uh, terrorism, it's become predictable that we're going to be hearing about a new attack almost every day. But what's unpredictable is where exactly the next attack is going to be. So that makes us feel helpless and afraid, and then we have our denial and our political correctness that works against our seeing the reality of what's going on. And today we're going to be hearing about some of that reality, um, things that, uh, of course, you know, we'd all wish that this would just go away. <laughs> it's a b- bad nightmare. But um, it ain't happening, so it's important that we really understand what is really going on. And there is uh, there are a few people better able to tell us what's really going on than today's guest, Mubeen Sheikh. He is the author of Undercover Jihadi, Inside the Toronto 18 Al-Qaeda-Inspired Homegrown Terrorism in the West. And um, I think I'll let Mubin tell, <laughs> tell his story, but I'll just uh, tell you that he has, he, has, he has and continues to risk his life um, to try to save the West from terrorism. He's a Sunni Muslim. His parents were born in the, well, her, his parents emigrated from the United Kingdom. They were from India. And um, he has um, seen both sides now and can tell us about it. So, Mubin, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much for having me. So, uh, before we... Um, I would like to to plan uh, to talk about some of the things, and I know you have insights and strong opinions and so on, on so many of the things that are going on as we speak. Um, but I think what's important is first to give my listeners um, a peek, <laughs> and of course they could get the whole story if they buy your book, but a peek uh, inside your life, how you, oh, where you came from and where you have been, which of course um, explains your thoughts today, who you are today. Yeah, okay. Um, so what I'll do first is I'll just kind of give a very, very quick uh, chronology of like, you know, my, how I got from A to B, let's say. It's just yeah. one heck of a journey. Yeah. Um, and everybody has their story, right? And I mean, I accept that mine is very unique because of the the, the specific circumstances and factors um, that informed my life experience. So like you said, you know, my my... Parents were born in India, but my father went to the U.K. when he was a teenager to stay with his uncle to study, right? And so he was doing his high school, his college there, um, and a Canadian company was on campus and had a a job fair, and he he went, and they offered him a job because he was doing 
um, electronics, uh, British electronics uh, in the 70s. So he went back to India, married my mom, came back to Canada, and I was born. And <laughs> coming, them coming from the Indo-Pakistani background, right? So it's important that we also separate particular cultures from where uh-huh. they are because the, the Indo-Paks are different from the Afro-Caribbean, from the Indo-Asian. So the Indo-Pak system is very much like it's caricatures. I don't want to call them stereotypes. Maybe they are stereotypes, but, I mean, they're, they're actual uh, real things. It's like a, the madrasa system. Uh, where, you know, boys are, you know, rocking back and forth on the ground, wooden benches in front of them, no girls, or if there were girls, they were on the other side of the wall. Uh, rigid environment, you don't know what you're reciting. Uh, if you if you make a mistake, you're beaten, right? So this is where the, the, the introduced the idea of violence in the religion. You mm. see, this is where it starts to develop uh, in that life experience, what you're going through. So if you're living in a country that's been under dictatorship, or there's poverty, or there's political conflicts, your your way of thinking is going to be completely different than what we, you know, take for granted here in the West. Mm-hmm. So I went to this, this kind of madrasa system when I was a kid in my younger years, so two hours a day, including weekends. But during the day, I went to public school. I spent many more hours there. It was a caring, nurturing environment. There was diversity. There was gender mixing. You know, you could actually talk to a girl. Uh, and so this began to create this uh, uh, an acute identity crisis as to who am I supposed to be, right? This goes back to the deep-rooted human issues of sense of meaning, belonging, identity. Uh, and this is what you find with the youngsters today. Uh, so... so um, it would give me an identity crisis. I went through uh-huh. public school. I wasn't bullied. I wasn't picked on. Um, I had, you know, I wasn't a player, quote unquote. I wasn't like that. I was still conservative in some sense. Um, and one day, I was 17. My parents were in India. My, I, we had gone there to for somebody's wedding. I lied to them and said, "I'm. I need to go back home to register for courses." I came back. And I called up my friends and I said, hey, we're having a house party. <laughs> okay. Now, unbeknownst to me, my dad had told his older brother, go <laughs> check on the house while I'm gone. So in the middle of the party, this very mean, you know, scowling, just like real hard arse, uh, storms into the home, bursts into the party. There are women there. There's alcohol there. <laughs> this was like, I mean, his head was going to explode. So what happened was now I was in panic. My life was now crashing down. I thought, how can I fix this? So I looked back into my cultural experience, and I think I need to get religious, quote-unquote, because religious people are respected in the community. You know, there are other stories of people who were screwed up once, and then they got religious, and, you know, it's the born-again experience. Mm-hmm. Right? And usually you find this, it's called, I call it rebound radicalization. Hmm. So, you know, you go through this thing, is it, let's say death in the family, you become ultra-religious, and you hmm. go all the way the other way. Hmm. And so, um, and so um, yeah, um, so, so the point is, is that the, the uh, uh, getting caught made me think, let me get religious. I then went to India and Pakistan. Now, this is 1995. I'm 19 years old. 
Okay, now I should add, in my high school experiences, you know, very, not bullied, not picked on, very integrated. But I had this identity crisis. Now I had to, I, I was forced to choose, is it going to be this culture or this West or how am I going to do it? So uh-huh. I go to India and Pakistan, 1995. Spend my time in India. Last month, I go to a place called Kuwaita in Pakistan, Q-U-E-T-T-A. Now, Q-U-E-T-T-A happened to be uh, the stronghold of the Taliban hmm. before they came to power in Afghanistan. Hmm. I was walking about the area, saw these bearded, robed guys, thought they were theologians, went over and talked to them, said, oh, you know, I'm on this religious trip, and, you know, uh, we, you know uh, I, was, I went with this religious group, um, I mean, they proselytize to other Muslims. They tell Muslims, listen, if you want to bring change in the world, you fast more, you pray, you know, you behave like good Muslims. And the Taliban guy said, well, if you want to change the world, you do it with this. And he held up his AK-47. And for me, this 19-year-old kid with this acute identity crisis looking for some kind of belonging to some identity that resonates with what he thinks he's supposed to be, these people were like heroes to me. Uh-huh. They were heroes of old who were resurrected, you know, in modern times where uh, these, these political conflicts and, and we'll get to that. But So I came back in 95. They come to power in Afghanistan. It clicks for me. I said, they, these people did what they said they were going to do. They achieved mm. it. Hmm. So I took that as a validation and I became a supporter of what I term the global jihadist cause. And that was the belief that there is a war on Islam and that we need to do something about it. Okay, this is what is called the singular narrative. This is what drives the entire narrative, what we call terrorism, uh, really, truly. It's uh, real and imagined grievances, political grievances, um, and, of course, ideology, particular interpretations of the Qur'an, particular verses of the Qur'an, and we'll get to some of those verses uh, that, are, that are manipulated to serve this political goal. In 1998, uh, I should say I got married, okay? uh, a girl that I knew from high school. Okay? She was a convert. She converted to Islam, hmm. Polish background, used to be a goth chick, <laughs> wore cherry <laughs> docks. You know? uh, she got tattoos, you know? nice yeah. tattoos. Uh, but now... I got married, it calms me down a bit, right? Then I also, for my honeymoon, I went to Israel. I went to Mecca and Medina. So now I had this open experience of other cultures, huh. and now I start to get out of, of that thinking, okay? Then 9-11 happens. And I'll be honest, and I say this, and I admit it freely, it was Tuesday morning, I will never forget that day. I was driving to work. I heard a plane hit the building. You know, the first response out of my mouth was, Allahu Akbar, God is great. Hmm, hmm. Now, I didn't know it was an attack. I thought it was an accident. Okay? And I thought it was this freak accident, and you see God is punishing the Americans for that, for something, right? Huh. I went because to work. Because by that point, you, were, you had become indoctrinated to believe that um, even though you were calmed down after getting married and so on, you were still believing that um, there was a, a, a global uh, war against Islam. That's right. 
And okay. remember, because it was in 1998, I, I also said the year I got married that Bin Laden came out with his fatwa against the mm-hmm. world. Uh-huh. Um, and it's only those few years later that we realized, ah, well, that's the 9-11 attacks, right? Uh-huh. So, but if something struck me that day, and, and, and a lot of people removed it, changed the world. Uh, you know, all day people were watching it on the media, uh, you know, my people were calling my home. They knew that I was in these in these groups, and my good Muslim friends are calling me saying, Mubin, this is not our religion. This is not what we're about. My non-Muslim friends that I had, you know, cut off because now I was hardcore religious, hmm. uh, they were saying to me, is this your religion? Is this what you've become? Uh-huh. Um, so I was forced to reevaluate my commitment to the cause. And remember, coming out of extremism, this is the whole... This is the whole point. So we were talking about 9-11 and how the different reactions that you were getting from people uh, made you rethink how you really felt. Right. So the journey into extremism, this is what radicalization is called. It is that journey, on a a political journey. Uh, So so it also took time to get out of that. And 9-11 was a major... Uh, wedge issue, you know, a major cognitive wedge, meaning that because it was such a spectacular attack and it was being, people were sharing in the trauma of that event that day, um, you know, on TV screens. Mm-hmm. And um, so I thought to myself, you know what, I need to study my religion because I, there's something, some fun, something fundamentally wrong with flying planes into buildings. Uh-huh. I can understand the global jihadist cause, you know, fighting aggressors and occupiers. And, you know, these are natural, you know, self-defense type um, narratives. But planes into buildings. And that evening, I went back and I was hanging around with those same bad Muslim guys. And uh, one friend said out loud to the group, you know, I understand this, but what do those people have to do with our fight? Like, how can you say this is legitimate? And there was an awkward moment there, and that was it. For me, inside my head, at that moment, mm. that was it. I thought, you know what, he's right. Uh-huh. And, uh, and he's still friends with me today, and we we're the only two guys who got out of that group. But the mm. rest of them were just, they were happy. They were happy that some harm and some injury came to people that they disliked. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, anyways, I decided I'm going to study the religion in Syria. Okay. So, a few months later, I sold some belongings. I had two children by this time. I moved to Syria, and I decided to study Arabic and Islamic studies. And this was two years, and this was this really solidified my deradicalization period. Deradicalization means you no longer even believe in the extremist views, right? Because uh-huh. you still have extremists, and they got really crazy views, but they won't act on those views, right? Because acting on those views is violent extremism, and that's what we call terrorism. Mm-hmm. So, um, I studied Arabic Islamic studies. I learned the actual context of the verses, the Arabic words that were used the historical settings in which these things came about and then you know firmly came to realize like my interpretations were cherry picking verses taking them out of context trying to apply things from 1400 years ago now right and and came out of it i realized 
it was a real police state. You know, Bashar al-Assad, who's the leader there now, he had just come to power. His older brother, who was, you know, you know, super, uh, super uh, military guy, was supposed to be next in line, died in a suspicious car accident, so it fell mm-hmm. to him. Um, and uh, and so it was a real police state. I came to realize, my God, I mean, the freedoms that we have in the West, uh, especially for Muslims, it's getting very tenuous now, obviously, because of what's happening. Um, but, um, you know, generally more rights here. And, um, and in 2003, a couple of guys that I had passed in the hallways... Uh, one tried to, one blew himself up in Israel in the 2003 Mike's Place bombing in mm-hmm. Tel Aviv. Uh, there were British nationals, Indo-Pak background, um, and so a lot of pressure came from the government in Syria for foreign students like myself. And you know what? I had it. I did. I got. You know, I got the point, and I I got up and went back home. Hmm. And it's 2004. Now, the first week I get back. Uh, in the front page of the paper is a kid by the name of Momin Kawaja who's been arrested on terrorism charges. He's the first Canadian to be arrested on the newly implemented post-9-11 terrorism laws. Momin Kawaja sat beside me in that madrasa that I went to as a kid. Oh, wow. Okay. I thought this is a mistake. Um, <laughs> you know, I knew him from a very young age. We had, of course, lost contact for some time. But, you know, I thought, no, this is a good family. This must be a mistake. Uh-huh. So I contacted the, the security intelligence service of the huh. country. Now, when I was testifying to this effect in court, the judge himself stopped and said, wait a second, who does that? <laughs> okay. And I'll tell you who does that. A kid like me who went through this crazy journey of being busted and going there and seeing the town and new identity and realizing, no, 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 this is fake. You know, they, they use this as a costume, Right. Um, and so I was more than happy to sign on the dotted line, so to speak, okay? And then they appreciated that, and so I began working. You mean, wait, wait, wait. You mean, who does that as far as to try to... A person who to... decides to call the Security Intelligence Service, uh, you know, about this guy that they've seen in the paper. But, I mean, what did you... You called them and, and, and spoke on his behalf, right? No, I, I, I wanted to give a character reference. Yeah, right? But this, the intelligence service was not so much interested in getting a, a reference from me. They wanted to see if they could recruit me as a spy. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, because if I, knew, if I knew this guy who'd been arrested, it must mean he, I know other guys, which right. I did know. But just to make the point, I never investigated any of the people I previously knew. Um, uh-huh. So my work was very, very specific, third-party objective uh, monitoring of groups and, and to, to make a call on them, basically. Yep, these guys are up to no good. These guys are okay. You know, also false allegations, right? I mean, this is why we have this, this intelligence system where we verify things, right? Especially, uh-huh. like, in the police context, uh, we verify things. Like, we don't just take whatever. Anonymous phone calls don't qualify as evidence, thank God. Right? Mm-hmm. I saw the effects of that in Syria, for example, where, you know, people were tortured and it was like, it was horrible, right? And uh-huh. so, so anyways, um, I'm recruited by the Security Intelligence Service. My job is to go right undercover straight to the extremists who are being surveilled, 
Um, I'm part of a team of, of course, covert agents who are also conducting counterintelligence at the same time. Um, what happens is, so I'll just say generally those are the kinds of investigations I did with the Security Intelligence Service until December 2005 when I traversed over to the federal police. And so what happens is in the intelligence service in Canada, if they come to know that there are criminal actions that are going to happen or are happening, that file is transferred to the federal police. Okay? So I can't talk about any of the things I did before this case that went public. Uh Uh-huh. So this case that went public was the case of 18 young men in 2006 who were arrested on terrorism charges, various degrees of involvement in specific terrorism offenses. Um, We went up, the plan was to storm the parliament building, to take the members of parliament hostage, to behead them one by one, force the eviction of Canadian forces from Afghanistan, uh, and um, conduct bombings in, in the cities, three ammonia, three one-ton ammonium nitrate truck bombs, hmm. okay? uh, one to hit the intelligence service, one to hit the stock exchange, and one to hit a military base, um, to go off at the one downtown anyway, to go off at 9 o'clock, you know, when most pedestrian traffic is there. Uh, the discussion of shrapnel items to create the most amount of damage, blast radius, shattered glass. Like, there was a lot of um, fantasy thinking in the sense that although they wanted to achieve these horrible things, there was really no way. Like, their reach exceeded their grasp, okay? But but it's not because of lack of trying, okay? Uh-huh. So... 18 individuals were arrested. 2006, this was the big domestic radicalization case. Um, keep in mind, uh, you know, around the same time, you had 2005, the London bombings, Madrid train bombings. Like, there were right. a lot of things happening, of course, at that time. So, anyways, that was the end of the case. I then spent four years in court, five legal hearings, and prosecuted this case. And now, uh, since 2010 to 2015... You know, I went back online. I've been doing this uh, pro-Islam, anti-terrorism narrative. Uh, I've intervened and engaged ISIS um, foreign fighters. Wait, wait, uh, pro-Islam, wait, back up a little bit. Pro-Islam, anti-terrorism. Right. Could you explain that a little more? Sure. Um, So, you know, this this, uh, really, you know, what we're dealing with is the way I call them is TICs, T-I-C's, Terrorism in Islamic Costume, okay? So what they do is they will cherry-pick verses and, and manipulate those verses to, to mean, oh, you need to kill the infidel wherever you see him. You know, just anyone randomly, right? Which is ridiculous and preposterous. There are, like, Islamic laws against that. Like, you can't just do that. You cannot say Allahu Akbar and shoot innocent people in a restaurant. You might as well say Bismillah and eat pork. You know what I mean? That's the, that's the equivalence of it. Um, so terrorism is completely against the religion, um, and I use Islamic arguments to prove that. Right? And so uh-huh. that's been my narrative against uh, ISIS wannabes, ISIS foreign fighters. I've stopped you know, girls, a white girl from Seattle, Washington. The story was featured in uh, your media uh, how ISIS recruits a Sunday school teacher 
And it's a case from Seattle, Washington, of this young girl. There was a New York Times article done on her. Fascinating read. Um, So I've intervened with people. I've stopped them from, uh, you know, ruining their lives. I'm in touch with parents whose kids have gone and died, and the networks of mothers that are affected by this, other parents that are affected by this. Um, So... So that's that's what I mean by pro-Islam anti-terrorism. Hmm. Because this you is know, what I that's feel. The, the, one of the problems with that, I can see, and um, I must admit, I I was not. Um, I mean, it's a different way of looking at it, and it's not. Uh, it's a it's a more I don't know complicated or. I mean, it's not easily described in sound bites. You know, because there is. Um, I mean, it is true that it is in the Koran, these, these, these lines, you know, these paragraphs, um, about oh, yeah, I, killing I know the infidels. Them. I know them. And, what? Well, well, that's the thing, that what we've seen, the only thing, here's what we get. We get cherry-picked verses. So I, I give you an example, okay? I give you a perfect example. Chapter 9, verse 5. Okay, chapter nine, verse five is one of is easily the most famous. What's called the the, the verse of the sword. People have called it the verse of the, of the sword. Okay, and and even when I used to to use it in my extremist interpretations, it went very simplistic and simply, you know, uh, kill the unbelievers wherever you find them. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's the that's the portion of the verse that's always quoted. Yeah. But it's a portion of a verse, right? So this is what I learned in Syria with this scholar who said, okay, you know, look at the whole verse, right? So it, it, there's a context to it. You know, this particular verse, you know, it does say this is where, you know, when the sacred months have passed and kill the polytheists wherever you find them, okay? So polytheists referred to the pagan tribes who were attacking the Muslims. Okay, like 1,400 years ago. Uh-huh. And the verse right before it, so the sheikh says to me, he says, do you usually begin reading from verse 5? Right? So he says, go to verse 1. And mm-hmm. verse 1 talks about the, you know, the, the polytheists, that you made a treaty with them, and they broke the treaty, and they're fighting you. And then if you see verse 4, the one directly before verse 5, it says, not included in this are those who kept the treaty, who are not fighting you, mm, you know, mm. fulfill your term, fulfill your contract with them. That's all, okay, well, that, that's all really fascinating. You know, it's, well, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to this. We need yeah. to take a break. I hate to have to take a break in the middle of this, but we will, and we will be back. Um, my guest is Mubeen Sheikh. Um, his book is called... Um, Undercover Jihadi, uh, Inside the Toronto 18, Al-Qaeda-Inspired Homegrown Terrorism in the West. And uh, we'll continue talking about Mubin's story and um, how he's uncovered um, all of this confusion, putting some, putting some uh, sanity into some of the confusion, which apparently really runs rampant. And I will admit that um, it includes me. I thought I knew all of this. Um, we will come back in a minute. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask 
the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, with my my guest, Mubeen Sheikh, um, talking about terrorism, taking a look at terrorism from the inside out, and as you've been hearing, he has certainly been on the inside all over the place, in Canada, in Syria, and so on, and in all different groups, um, uh, you know, related to this whole controversy. And um, his book, again, is called Undercover Jihadi, um, uh, Inside the inside the uh, Toronto 18 Al-Qaeda-inspired homegrown terrorism in the West. And um, so we, you know, and I know, I just want to make sure that my listeners know that what, of course, um, (laughs) of course, Mubin can't tell every single detail of his whole life in this um, show during this hour because we also want to talk about the current events. But so I hope that you're, Getting, I mean, I hope you realize that there is so much more to some of the highlights that he's been giving you, and certainly, I mean, I can't wait actually to uh, as soon as as soon as we uh, end the show, I'm going to order a copy of the book which I've started reading, and um, and it is just fascinating. So let's go back to wh- where we left off, um, which was you know this whole issue of the, and I was saying off the air, I was telling Mubin that. You know, when I wrote, wrote my book, Coping with Terrorism, Dreams Interrupted, uh, it came out in, in 2006 on the one-year anniversary of the 7-7 London terrorist attacks. And so I was going to tons of, of conferences and so on, hearing um, people, experts in terrorism, um, uh, talk about it and talk about how there are all these verses and, and, um, and you know, in the Quran and therefore... Um, that's what people, that's why the terrorists are, that's their mission. And you're not saying that it's not the mission of the terrorists. You're saying that they have cherry-picked the verses that they want to believe in. Uh, absolutely. You know, I, I, I'll just, I'll keep it very um, focused on my, on my next comment here. So the 
So the Islamic sources, there are these verses. These verses are part of other verses, you know, that come in paragraphs and 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 you will see you will see that people who say no islam is the cause of this terrorism it's the religion that's making them do it mm-hmm. I, I the only thing i can say is that i used to be like that like those people who used to interpret verses like that and and it's only when i actually studied properly that somebody could say to me okay look at verse 4 so i used the example of chapter 9 verse 5 mm-hmm. okay and then and so that was and it's very easy to check that right because they say they use that verse that is the verse they use you know, kill the unbelievers wherever you find them. But, you know, number one, it doesn't say unbelievers, it says polytheists, right? Because in, in the Quran, Jews and Christians are called people of the book, right? Um, mm. Versus, you know, as opposed to, you know, um, non, like, let's say, you know, Abrahamic faiths, we'll call them. So, so anyways, the Islamic sources talk about a sect, a sect called the Khawarij, K-H-A-W-A-R-I-J. Okay, K-H-A-W-A-R-I-J. The Khawarij were a deviant sect mentioned in the early Islamic sources, okay, where they are castigated and they are like, so the Prophet said, and I'm quoting, okay, some of them, um, it says they were, you know, they, uh, they, they are the dogs of hell. Those people were Muslims, but they became disbelievers. Okay, here's mm-hmm. another one. It says, uh, blessedness is for those who kill them or who are killed by them. They are the most evil of creation. Okay, and here's the third one. Uh, he says, the Khawarij are an evil people who disobey God, even though they may fast, pray, and strive hard in worship. Uh, they outwardly display uh, their religion, uh, enjoining the good and prohibiting the evil, but it does not benefit them because they explain the Qur'an to mean whatever they desire, and they falsify to the Muslims. And verily, God warns you against them. Um, And here's the kicker. So, ISIS uses a lot of this end-time philosophy, end-time narratives, and a lot of people, frankly, believe in that. I I have some education in the the Christian traditions, the apocalyptic traditions of, Mm -hmm. you know, Christ and Antichrist. Now, most people probably don't know, you know, Muslims believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Peace hmm. be upon him. Okay, like a physical, you know, uh, return to the earth where, you know, all, you know, knees shall bow uh, to his authority, this idea of the coming Messiah. Muslims also believe that. But we also believe that Jesus Christ comes, peace be upon him, to kill the Antichrist. All right, so who is the Antichrist? So in the Islamic sources... In the Islamic sources, it says, there shall appear a group of people from my ummah. Okay, so the Prophet, peace be upon him, is saying, from my people, meaning from the Muslims. Okay? Uh They will recite the Quran, but it will not pass their throats. Every time a generation of them appears, it will be cut down until the Antichrist appears from their last remnants. So, I know it's heavy apocalyptic... Um, eschatology, right? I understand that. But this is how they see themselves, right? They see themselves as this messianic army, okay? This, you know, they have a glossy magazine, you know, called, uh, it's a real glossy magazine called Dabiq, D-A-B-I-Q. Don't Google search that. You'll probably end up on a, just kidding. Um, (laughs) So anyways, I don't want to drag this out, but we believe they are an ancient deviant sect uh, that are harbingers of the Antichrist. 
period. Uh, well, so, okay, so... So they take the verses, completely rip them apart. They're basically religiously trolling us, you know? I mean, you can find crazy fatwas from 1,400 years ago when people lived in deserts or even later on when, like, crusades happened and, you know, the, the, the one scholar they use most wrote in the time of when the Mongols sacked Baghdad, right, and mm-hmm. took the place over. And so his writings were very militant. You know, he was imprisoned, you know. And so now what these people do is they use the writings of these people and they apply it to modern-day content. Uh-huh. Now, I read something that you wrote um, or said or quoted as saying, talking about how just that, about how then why aren't we fighting on... Um, Donkeys, or what was it that you said that you know that that these things were meant to apply to those times, and um, and not the same weapons or not the same? Could you could you do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah. Well, this is this is exactly what we mean by you know um, changing not changing but uh, you know outdated laws. Okay, outdated laws in the Quran, and um, you can. I mean, there are religious scholars who are talking about this. I mean, these are sensible things which. You know, for its truth, for the you know the Muslim world, really, I think it's not you know so much the religion as it is dictatorships. I mean, you got to understand, like if you've ever gone and lived in the place where they live under those dictatorships, it's not a good place to be. You know, you're not thinking about you know the you're thinking only to survive and not be mm-hmm. like black bag and tortured. You know, for some accusation somebody made. Mm-hmm. You know, so that, that, I think that's why those countries are so screwed up in that sense. Because, I mean, if it was the religion, and here's the main argument, if it was the religion itself, you wouldn't have this history of Muslims with science and, you know, literature and astronomy and this, that, and the other. I mean, they were at the forefront of these things. So it's not anathema to the religion at all, right? In fact, what's happened now is because Muslims have left, you know, the scientific pursuit and these sorts of things, especially, again, under dictatorships, they're not going to let you have scientific pursuit. The kids uh-huh. just want all the weapons, and that's it, right? So I think those are other reasons we can look at as to why those regions are so messed up. I would submit, I would submit that a proper interpretation and understanding of the religion is actually, this is how you fight uh, extremism, terrorism. You show them that you people, you're not even Muslim for doing these things, shooting people up in, in restaurants and just average people. No way impossible that that's sanctioned by the religion. So how do you, I mean, but you will admit that most Muslims who are not, um, what, who are, who condone, let's not even say who are terrorists, but who condone this, you know, um, they are not having that appreciation of the Quran that you just described. No, this is, this is the and enemy. So how do you feel about, about like when all these things are happening? You know, the like Paris, for example, or Belgium, and um, which is about to happen. Um, yeah, yeah, and, and so on. Um, how, I mean, is it like really frustrating to you? What are you What are you doing to try to? I guess a, a, a goal, a passion, would be to try to make more Muslims have a better um, understanding of the Quran. Is that right? Yeah, well, I think that is right. Um, you know, there are, I think, you know, there are real political grievances, you know, that need to be dealt with. I mean, this is, you know, I think it's, uh, at the end of the day, you're, I don't know, I'm, I don't want to be cynical, but 
how do you do that, right? Like anytime, like political contexts mean a lot in the Middle East. We have like, again, like this is why I keep talking about dictatorships because they look at what they do to the place, you know? Um, so it's not maybe just particular interpretations of the Quran. That is also needed for sure, but also more political freedoms, right? More uh, ability to for social expression, uh, right? When these things are suppressed and oppressed, it it makes people dysfunctional, right? It makes them violent. Mm-hmm. Okay, but what about, I know you do a lot of work with um, trying to prevent people from becoming homegrown terrorists and trying to de- and de-radicalizing them and so on. So what about people who are living in Canada or the United States who aren't in an oppressed dictatorship and yet are, you know, want right. to kill people? <laughs> yep. So fancy, uh, you know, psychological term, I guess, in-group, out-group psychology is uh, um, vicarious deprivation. Okay, so you're not deprived, but what's happening is you're watching videos, okay, nicely produced videos, professionally produced, which are showing you images of, quote-unquote, your people being persecuted, Mm -hmm. showing you images, sounds, sound bites, clips of the perceived enemy, okay? And then they give you the message, you see that? What are you going to do about it? Hmm. And that's the message. So that kid who's well-to-do home, middle-class area, maybe better, uh, uh, he's not himself physically deprived, but he develops this feeling of deprivation because of what he's seeing being done to his you know, perceived in-group. Uh-huh. Uh, so these jihadi videos. This is why when they say, and they are, they are catchy. Okay, I I play these in my presentations to to uh, do stuff with I mean social forces and intelligence community, and and I show and they and they get it. They get the psychological manipulation that comes with using certain melodies, delivering certain uh, messaging mm-hmm. while a particular melody is playing. Mm-hmm. Right. This is all neuroscience, you know, neuroscience of, of uh-huh. like how we capture. So it's being studied like very minutely, uh, even by the enemy, uh, because mm-hmm. ISIS is who ISIS is the Baathist regime of the of Saddam's government. They joined up with Al Qaeda because the Americans went in in 2003. That's really what set things off. Uh, not that Saddam Hussein was a good guy or didn't need to go, but by getting rid of his military intelligence people and then them joining up with Al-Qaeda in a U.S. prison called Buka, B-U-C-C-A, they developed their networks and now here they are. This is why they know exactly where the oil is, where mm. the cultural artifacts are, because it's the old government. That's why they know how to run or they're claiming to run their caliphate state because they have experience running the Iraqi state. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, and it, again, it comes down to the Shias who were in in Iraq, were brought to power. The Americans used the Sunnis to fight Al Qaeda, but then you left this armed group of Sunnis and a suspicious Shia government saying, "No, no, no, we need to take these people out. They got American weapons." Boom! That created this divide between the Sunnis and Shias in Iraq. So, for a lot of Sunnis who who join ISIS, quote unquote, it's like for them, it's like it's no worse than the Shia militias who are doing just the same as ISIS is doing. Uh-huh. All right. So it's very ugly. And look, the Russians have been there for a long time. The Russians entered uh, at the tail end of 2012, okay? Um, 
ISIS entered Syria from Iraq in early 2012, so the Russians have been there for three years. What have they been doing since? How has ISIS been able to grow uh, in that time? Right? Ask those questions. Right? Mm-hmm. And so now mm-hmm. you see what happened today. The Turks shot down a Russian jet. Right. And NATO is meeting. I mean, it can escalate very quickly. And if I can tie it back to the, to the end-time prophecies type related stuff, uh-huh. so the way it goes is we're living in the days of you know, this cataclysmic battle that will take place in Syria. Right? And uh, there will be a group of the people of the book allied to the a group from the Muslims fighting uh, this harbinger of Antichrist. Okay, so this is what I think, you know, is the Turkey-NATO alliance, by the way. Uh, Turkey is the second largest army in NATO. I mean, uh, NATO's, uh, NATO's a big boy, right? And Russia's been very belligerent, you know. They have their port in Tartus, uh, which is their entry point into the Mediterranean. They're not going to let that go. We mm-hmm. saw what they did with Ukraine and Crimea when their naval base was under possible threat. They took over half the country. Right? Why do you think they went into Syria? Because they fear that uh, Assad is going to lose the coast and their port is compromised. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Right? So spice must flow, right? If I can quote Dune. <laughs> well, okay. But now, well, talking about into the world, though, in a different way, or maybe you're... Um, I, I read on... I think I understood what you were saying in one of your um, tweets... <laughs> Not that it's so easy to understand everybody's tweet, but uh, in 140 characters. But um, I, I have, uh, it seems like you, did I misunderstand, are you for um, the, uh, what do you, let, let's just put it this way, what do you think about um, the migration of the Syrian so-called refugees throughout Europe? Uh, okay, ooh, the refugee crisis. Well, okay, so... Root cause is Assad, right? They, they've taken polls of these people. Uh, the root cause of this is Assad. Assad attacked his people, right? Then, of course, you know, the groups arose, the, the fighting groups, and then ISIS came. So they're going to leave. Nobody's going to stay there. There's not, there's not even much left to stay for or even go back to. The place is just destroyed, right? I mean, it's five years of war. Like, I mean, it's, it's already using, you know, modern weapons, and, I mean, it's just... It's just crazy. Okay. Uh, and so it's, you can't do anything now. It's irreversible because that problem was not dealt with, right? Now you, so now there are two things with this migrant convoys or, you know, uh, refugee crisis. And a lot of them are. They're real refugees, man. They're like, they're, you know, not just the Yazidis, Christians. I mean, it's this group, ISIS. This is why we call them harbingers of the Antichrist. I mean, what they have done, I mean, across the board to every single group, you know, it's just appalling. Like, we've, we've really never seen anything like, actually, we have. I mean, I mean, Pol Pot and, I mean, Hitler, I mean, these guys were really bad, right. too. But, I mean, just the systematic targeting of cultural groups in particular and cultural icons, mm-hmm. uh, we really haven't seen that. There's a very specific, it's trying to erase human civilization, right? Uh, so, so, anyways... Um, uh, what was the I was asking was about the swar- like, like in particular, the commas, yeah. there's this video that I'm sure you must have seen, which is just the most terrifying thing. I mean, I have gone on, I have said on this show, and I have, I mean, I, I think that it is not a good idea to, uh, yes, it's very unfortunate that it is a mixture of people who 
you know, well, are the US, not uh, don't aren't don't yeah. plan on doing anything bad, and they really are just trying to have a life. But then there are people in that group um, who yeah, course, really course, are out. Look, I say to the Americans, all right, I think the number was what ten thousand. Like well, that, that originally so, Obama yeah, and, said to have come in here. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I just I don't know what the exact number was, but I remember like it was such a small number. So I would say to the Americans, it's not a problem, really. You guys already have a, a very robust vetting system where where you could easily pick ten thousand candidates would satisfy all your requirements. Yeah, but the That's thing is that he's really it's just saying ten thousand now. He, he's saying ten thousand now, but he wants more. But have you seen the video um, of Europe? With the, uh, it's on the internet. It went viral on the internet, and it's it's um, clips from newsreels of these refugees or migrants um, coming into different places in Europe and really destroying. Uh, I mean, it is so for wa- raping women. It, it, it's terrifying. It's like going back to be, uh, before the caveman. Yeah, no, no. This is again. This is so. Here are three crusade era narratives. Okay, that, that, that are gripping this, the world now, okay? So this is, again, back to these end-time prophecies where it talks about uh, the three that will really be added, the identities in the world will be Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. These are the three that whose, whose, whose tensions will, will be driving uh, the world conflict at that time. That's uh-huh. why it's linked to, you know, the return of... Anyways, so the idea of Muslim hordes encroaching on European Christian civilization. Mm-hmm. Right? That's the narrative. And it's, it's bolstered by the fact that you have literal boats that are lining up, dead kids floating ashore. I mean, mm-hmm. this is how bad it's come. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so Europe has a much, much bigger problem. Uh, they can't avoid it. You literally and physically cannot stop that many people. Come. It's just, they're just so close, you know what I mean, that they could the way that they were able to move their ships, and it was very easy to do. You can't do that in North America. We have, like, thousands of miles of ocean, um, you know, between us, right? So in Canada, where I am, it's the same issue. We don't... We had people coming in boats long, long ago, right? Those days for here are not... Because those areas are not in such conflict. But coming to Greece, coming to Italy from North Africa... You know, it's like the colonialists came down there, and now these people are going mm-hmm. up there, mm-hmm. right? It's that cycle. So the Europe, Europeans face a, a huge challenge, huge. Uh, it can well, only be yes, managed ve- at this stage. It's very frightening to watch. And, yes, I understand what you're saying, and that is somewhat <laughs> somewhat reassuring, but... But, um, you know, but it's sad to see what's happening to Europe, even taking the U.S. out of this and Canada out of it, just for right now what's happening in Europe um, is sad. And I, I know this is, well, I, we're kind of coming to the end of our, of our time here. Um, and obviously <laughs> we can't uh, solve all of the problems in the hour, but I think what we did do Oh, sure was, we can. <laughs> <laughs> Well, maybe a second hour. I'll have you on again, and we'll do a second hour. (laughs) But I think think what really is important from all this for right now is opening up the dialogue, opening up the the concept, talking about the concept that, in fact, which I must say, again, because I've done so many shows and written and so on 
um, that this concept, it's an elusive concept that you're talking about, elusive not just from in terms of my um, understanding of it, but as I said, it doesn't come in sound bites, so we, it's hard to get on American television um, or even on American radio when it's not a long-form show like this. Um, so, but it's obviously something that at least needs to be discussed a lot more in mosques, out of mosques, all over the world to, to sort of um, poke the air, you know, punk, p- poke a hole in the balloons that the jihadists are carrying um, to, to sort of bring this other side to it, that that's, not, that, that that's just one interpretation and leaving out all of the context. So that's so so important, and and I don't know of anyone else doing this. So you know what you're doing is is really really crucial, and um, uh, the sooner the better that more people start discussing this and thinking about it and rereading the whole thing. So thank you so much, um, Mubeen Sheikh. Uh, hearing me out. <laughs> well, you're welcome. Again, the book is called Undercover Jihadi. Um, Eighteen. Inside the Toronto 18, Al-Qaeda-inspired homegrown terrorism in the West. Um, your story, you know, I know you, you did a great job giving us the highlights, but there is so much more. I really encourage all of you people who are listening um, to read it for yourself and, um, and to decide for yourself whether, um, you know, it seems clear to me, but to decide for yourself whether this is someone who has who has walked on all sides of the issue, who has been raised, seen from, from childhood, um, seen both sides, and uh, really studied, has been and is continuing to study all of this, and, um, and really can share some of his experiences and shed some light on this very, very complicated problem. So, Mubeen, thank you again. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Cheers. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.